Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have one guest with us today for the first half of the program. And we're very honored to have with us uh, the former Indiana 9th District Congressman Lee Hamilton. Since uh, leaving office after serving for 34 years in Congress, um, Mr. Hamilton has has been involved in a variety of things, including serving as the director of the Indiana University Center on Congress. Uh, He's been involved, of course, in the 9-11 Commission, um, the Iraq Study Group, a lot of other things. So, uh, Lee, welcome. Welcome Thank you. Program. Nice to be with you and uh, Mary Catherine. Thanks for being here. If Thank you. If uh, you out there have questions or comments uh, for Congressman Hamilton, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I, I like to tease Congressman Hamilton. I remember uh, having attended a retirement for part, a party for you many years ago, and I—, I like to give you a hard time about the definition of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I flunked retirement. <laughs> and that's good, that's good for the rest of us. Um, let's start with a couple of big, big issues, big ticket items. Uh, one is, is the, um, the situation in, in Iraq. Um, you uh, have been involved in foreign affairs for many, many years. And, and I wonder, you know, what's your opinion on how we uh, get out of Iraq? Bob, I don't think you have very many good options at this point. Uh, I do not agree with people who say we have won in Iraq or that we have succeeded, uh, nor do I agree with people who said we've lost. (laughs) I think uh, it's a mixture of both, some progress and uh, a lot of lack of progress. Uh, Where do you go from here? Uh, My quick answer is that I think we should begin a responsible exit. I do not favor a mad rush for the exit. Uh, I think it should be slow, steady, deliberate, but sure. Probably taking uh, maybe as long as a couple of years uh, to do it. I would negotiate immediately a treaty or an agreement with the Iraqi government for the uh, departure of American forces. it would be far preferable if we do it by agreement than if we just do it. But it should be done on our timetable and not theirs. But, of course, a lot of other things have to be done as well. Uh, we have to do a much better job of training Iraqi forces than we've done. We've made some improvements there, but not nearly enough. We should have a diplomatic offensive engaging the countries in the region to reinforce uh, stability in Iraq. I've got to put a lot more pressure on Maliki to make uh, changes towards national reconciliation. So it's a very complex picture. Nothing's going to work uh, absolutely well. But I do think it's time now to begin a responsible exit. Okay. All right. We have a phone call already. We're, we, since we only have you for a half an hour, we are going to have to get to the, to the phones and, and get to the emails that we have. Uh, I know Mary Catherine and I would love to talk to you for a couple of hours, but we don't have that. So let's go to David on the phone. David? Yes. Hello, Congressman Hamilton. Uh, This is David Keppel. Uh, This week, uh, speaking before the Israeli parliament, uh, President Bush compared those who uh, would uh, like to negotiate uh, our differences with Iran with those who appeased the Nazis. Uh, I wonder what your, your comment might be on this comparison. And if you do feel that there's room for negotiation with Iran, what lines do you think that might take? Uh, David, I don't think the present policy towards uh, Iran is working well. Uh, We've tried to isolate Iran. We've tried to insulate it. Um, And what has happened is that Iran has now become the dominant uh, outside power in the region. Um, They continue to build the nuclear weapon. So I think we have to try a new approach. And among the ways I would do that would be to talk to Iran. Uh, I do not look with favor upon the president's um, uh, identification as negotiation with appeasement. I think that shows a startling lack of confidence in our ability to negotiate. I do not see how you can solve difficult problems in the world, including our problems with Iran, which are very formidable, uh, without talking to them. 
Uh, I don't have exaggerated expectations here about what can be achieved quickly, uh, but we talked for, with the Soviet Union for four decades. We talked to Joe Stalin. We talked to Mao Zedong. And I think it has been the tradition of American foreign policy to engage not just our friends, but to engage our adversaries as well. Uh, we must not have quick, uh, unrealistic expectations, but we've got a long list of problems with Iran. They've got a long list of problems with us. And I think you have to talk with them uh, before you consider the military option. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you very much, Congressman yeah. Hamilton. All right, David. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Here's an email that came in before the show. It says, two days before the Indiana primary, I spoke with you and asked why you weren't supporting Hillary Clinton. Your response was that she did not vote for the health bill, You and you added that maybe she will learn her lesson. What lesson does she need to learn, and has Mr. Obama already learned his lesson? And will you now vote according to the desire of Indiana voters or your own personal desire? Uh, I remember the conversation. Uh, she approached me, and uh, uh, she said that uh, uh, Senator Clinton will compromise. Um, my response was that she did not compromise on the health care bill. Now, this was before Hillary was a member of the Senate. She was the first lady. And then I think I added that maybe she has learned in the process to compromise, and I hope that's the case. I think Hillary Clinton is a very strong candidate and an enormously able woman. Um, and should she get the nomination, which does not seem likely at the moment, uh, she would be a very strong candidate for the Democratic Party. Uh, I preferred uh, Senator Obama because I think he has inspired a lot of the country because I think his theme of change matches the mood of the country better than Hillary Clinton's theme of experience. And uh, in that sense, I think Obama has captured the mood of the country uh, better. I think he's most likely to bring unity to the country. That's not a sure thing, of course. Uh, but I think he has a better chance of doing it. He has clearly changed the contours of American politics by bringing a lot of new people into the process. Uh, I can't remember a candidate speaking to 75,000 people as uh, he did in Oregon recently and 70,000 just uh, the other day. So we have two very strong candidates in the Democratic Party for the presidential nomination, and I'll support either one who gets the nomination with, with pleasure. Well, one of the, one of the, the um, concerns about Senator Obama has been his, his lack of experience, particularly in, in foreign policy. And um, I have heard some people suggest, I may have even suggested it myself, that you would make an excellent vice president in that set of circumstances. Would you consider anything like that? Oh, I'm too old for that, Bob. <laughs> I, uh, I've been considered for various offices uh, since at least the middle of the 1970s, and I haven't gotten one yet. So uh, <laughs> I don't think my chances are very good here. Uh, but uh, on the point of experience, um, I think the thing you want in a president is judgment, uh, more important than experience. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had two years of experience in the Congress, almost none in American foreign policy. Uh, he did pretty well as president of the United States. Presidents get very, very good advice from talented people. And what you want above all else is judgment. Uh, I've known a lot of people with a lot of experience who have gotten us into some real messes in this country. So it doesn't necessarily follow that experience leads to competence. Uh, judgment leads – good, good judgment leads to, co to uh, competence. Mm -hmm. uh, just briefly referring back to the emailer, uh, do you think that uh, Barack Obama has learned his lesson about compromise? Uh, Barack Obama's uh, length of time in the Senate has been brief. Uh, he has shown a willingness to reach across the aisle. His rhetoric, I think, has been very, very good in his willingness to sit down with others and to reach across the ideological divide and the party divide. 
Now, I, I understand that rhetoric is not performance, and there's a risk here, I'd have to acknowledge. Uh, but I'm impressed with the way he approaches it. He, he's a very, he has his own views, strongly held views, but he also has a real maturity about him. And uh, Senator Clinton likes to say, I'm a fighter. Well, that almost connotes, does it not, uh, my way and not compromise. Senator Obama says, I will sit down with these people and reach across the ideological divide. He's shown his ability to appeal to all kinds of groups in the country in both popular election and in the caucuses. So my nod here goes to Senator Obama. And I look, I understand people can disagree with that judgment uh, and make a good case the other way around. Uh, the toughest thing in politics is making these personal judgments, mm -hmm. uh, particularly within your own party. Mm -hmm. I, it's, I'm never real comfortable doing that. Uh, but in the end, in politics, you have to make judgments, and I gave the nod to Senator Obama. Okay, thank you. All right, our phone numbers eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, or you can send your email to noon at indiana dot edu. Uh, Lee Hamilton, Congressman Lee Hamilton, will be here with us for another fifteen or twenty minutes. So. Um, one of the other big issues that's going on today, of course, in uh, all of our lives is, is $4 a gallon gasoline. What, uh, what do you think should be done about energy policy? Well, we're slow learners, Bob. That's the first thing that strikes me. <laughs> uh, I gave a speech back in the 70s on energy policy on the floor of the House. I got it out and read it the other day. You know you're getting old when you start reading your old speeches. <laughs> but uh, I... I could give the same speech today. Um, every item in it was what we should have done and we ought to be doing those things today. This is not a complicated problem. You've got to increase your supply. You've got to do some drilling that we're not doing. Uh, you've got to be very tough with the environmental controls when you do that. You've got to emphasize conservation. You've got to emphasize uh, alternative we all know what we're supposed to do. We just haven't done it. And uh, I say, therefore, we're slow learners. Well, maybe the $4 gasoline will make us uh, speed up the learning process <laughs> a little bit. I, I hope so. Uh, may I just point out the obvious, and that's the foreign policy implication of this. There isn't a region in the world that has caused us more difficulty or heartburn than the Middle East over a period of decades. Every president struggles with the problems in the Middle East. We've made some progress. We've had a lot of setbacks. Uh, just think what the world could be for us if we were not so dependent upon that oil from the Middle East and how much effective, uh, more effective our policy would be worldwide. And, of course, the domestic implications are clear. This $4 gasoline is really hurting people today, really hurting them. And uh, I don't think it's going to come down sharply. It seems to me uh, it's still fundamentally a problem of supply and demand. There are a lot of other aspects to it. Uh, but uh, the oil producers have kind of got accustomed to $4 a gallon gasoline and they like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. All right. Here's another email that we've received. It says, given that Memorial Day weekend is coming up and that Congressman Hamilton is a former Marine, I'm curious to know what he thinks of Senator Jim Webb's new GI Bill, which passed the Senate yesterday by a 75-22 vote. It's become a topic in the presidential race with Senator Obama supporting it and Senator McCain opposing it, although he did not show up for the Senate vote yesterday. Well, I'm complimented by the fact that he thinks I'm a former Marine. I'll have to say that I'm not. If I don't, the Marine Corps is going to come down on me pretty hard, I believe. Uh, but I th appreciate the compliment. Uh, I am not a close student of the Webb bill, but I do think I favor it probably on what I do know about it. Uh, like most members of the Congress, I've been a very uh, strong admirer of the GI Bill. Uh, we haven't really kept it up to date in terms of level of uh, payment. And so I think uh, I would have voted for the Webb Bill. Uh, let me just say very quickly that in the visits to Baghdad that uh, the Iraq study group made, you could not help but be impressed by the dedication of all Americans, including the civilians, but particularly the burden carried by our servicemen there. 
Um, and everybody is familiar with that, but we, remi- we need to remind ourselves of it constantly, and the Memorial Day weekend is the best day to do it. Uh, the burdens carried by those young people, men and women, are just extraordinary. One very quick example. I stepped off an air-conditioned airplane into 130-degree heat. Uh, they put on about 40 or 50 pounds of armor on me, big helmet, and a fellow, I, I must say, I could hardly get through the day with that kind of equipment on, uh, and, and I had no physical burden. I wasn't trying to do anything physically. Uh, at my age, simply, I couldn't do it. But those young people have to do it day after day after day, and they can't go in every night and get a nice clean shower. Uh, so my, my admiration and respect for what they do and are called upon to do is without limit. All right. There's another email that we received. It says, what is your present assessment of the Bush's administration to the 911 report, 9-11 report you worked so generously on? Uh, I must say that uh, both the president and the Congress have been pretty good in responding to it. Uh, A bill was passed last year which incorporated uh, about – together with other things, about 80 percent of the recommendations we made in full or in part. And the president signed that bill. Uh, I think that's quite good for a uh, commission. Now, in some respects, however, (laughs) we've got a lot to learn still here. Let me give you two very quick ones. Uh, First responders at the scene of the accident should be able to talk with one another. That's common sense. You save lives when the police and the fire and the public health people can talk to one another. We lost lives at Katrina and we lost lives in New York and in Washington because they could not. This is a no-brainer in my view. We are still not at a point where the first responders can talk with one another at the scene of the, uh, the disaster. That's, that's an outrage. It's pure, simple outrage. I hope we'll get it corrected in the next few years. It should be corrected now. Secondly, when a disaster occurs, you need some one person in command. You have to make hundreds of decisions very quickly. You're going to make some of those decisions wrong, but somebody has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. You cannot afford the chaos, as you had in New York City, of I'm in charge. No, you're not. I'm in charge and arguing that while people are dying. So you have to have unity of command from the very beginning. This is a tough problem to work out politically. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with hundreds of jurisdictions and a major disaster, but we have to do it. The governor of Louisiana, when Katrina struck, had three helicopters, I'm told, at her disposal. She needed 150. And the only place you can get that is the United States military. So I think they have to be very heavily involved in this. And you do need a unified command. So we've made progress. We've made a lot of progress. We've got a lot more to do. Uh, I wanted to ask a question. Uh, Since I last talked to you, I've read uh, David Halberstam's book, War in a Time of Peace. And in it, he refers to some conversations that he had with you about your first meetings with, with President Clinton when you wanted to talk about foreign policy and <laughs> President Clinton wanted to talk only about domestic policy. Uh, I guess my, my question would be, do you think uh, – I'll refer to that other emailer. Did President Clinton learn his lessons about domestic policy that you wanted to share with him in those first meetings? Oh, uh, in 1992, after the – uh, Governor Clinton was uh, elected, but before he took office, he met with a group of us. And uh, I told him in the conversation that uh, uh, his presidency would be shaped by foreign policy, as I think is true of most presidents. Uh, he said, Lee, I went through the entire campaign and hardly, asked, uh, hardly answered a single question on foreign policy except from a few news people. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. And uh, he therefore came into office with a heavy focus on domestic issues. But uh, his presidency, like most presidency, were shaped by foreign policy. Presidents are the chief foreign policy maker. And um, Congress plays a marginal role, very marginal. So presidents have to become accustomed to that. One of the interesting things happening in this campaign 
is that people in um, Oslo and people in Delhi, India, and Tokyo and Jakarta are just as interested in this presidential campaign as you and I are. I meet with foreign visitors in Washington all over the, uh, from all over the world. They know as much about this campaign as you and I know about it. They're reading it ardently. What does that mean? It means the president of the United States is the leader of the, uh, the free world, in a sense, if I may use an old term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they now recognize that the president of the United States profoundly impacts their lives as well as American lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. It certainly has been borne out recently, especially. Um, Here's another email. There have been many compliments given to Senator Kennedy in the last week. However, I was disappointed by his interactions with President Carter, who could have used a, who, who could have used stronger support from several Democratic senators. How do you feel American historians will grade Ted Kennedy's service and leadership after he retires? Oh, I think uh, anybody would make uh, the judgment that Senator Kennedy has been a giant of the Congress. Uh, he will undoubtedly be considered, is considered, uh, one of the all-time great senators. Very unlike his brothers, Bob Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, uh, he has become a, a legislator. Jack Kennedy and Bob Kennedy passed through the United States Congress on their way to running for president. I think Senator Ted Kennedy came with the idea that he would run for president. But about the time of the Carter administration, he decided that he wasn't going to be president of the United States. And so he devoted his life from that point on to the Senate. Uh, He's an ardent liberal. He's the icon of the liberal establishment and a very effective spokesman for that group. But he also has a a very pragmatic streak about him, and he's willing to work to reach a— solution to a problem, even though that solution may be well below 100 percent of what he would want. I have enormous respect for him as a legislator and as a person, and I think uh, he'll probably go down as one of the five greatest senators this country's ever had. Uh, along those lines, I, I was talking with you before the program about uh, the next column that you've written. I, I get a, a fairly steady uh, number of columns from from you, and you wrote about uh, the need to build consensus in in policymaking, and it sounds as if you think Ted Kennedy was excellent at building consensus. Um, Talk a little bit, if you would, about about the need for that and how good we are at at actually building consensus. I think this is the number one skill needed for a politician today, and that's the ability to build consensus, to bring people together. But it's not just a skill needed in politics. It's needed in the hospital board, the church board, the uh, garden club. (laughs) Uh, Look, anybody can go into a room where you have differences of opinion and blow it apart. That's a pretty simple thing to do. What's really hard to do is to go into a room where you have different opinions and bring people together. That is political skill, whether it's exercised in government or whether it's exercised in the governing of your church. It takes that skill. We particularly need that skill in this country today because it's a very evenly divided country politically. And if you're going to solve or begin to solve the health care problem or the gasoline price problem or Iraq or whatever, you're not going to do it by somebody sitting in the White House and dictating a solution. They don't have that kind of power even though they're a powerful person. They're going to have to work to bring people together. And that skill is very, very desperately needed in the country today. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we are going, uh, about to have to let Congressman Hamilton go. But if you have one more email, I'm sure he would That's take fine. it. That's um, Okay. Uh, we'll go with this one. No matter uh, – we have several, so I have to choose. But no matter at what time we leave Iraq, I think we need to <clears throat> excuse me, provide a refuge outside Iraq for the possibly hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who fear for their life at that time. Can we make arrangements in advance, in advance for these folks? Would this be a way to ease our departure as it affects the political stability of Iraq? Well, the answer is surely yes. Uh, I think people must recognize, no matter how they feel about the war, no matter how they feel about going into the war or the conduct of the war, I think everybody recognizes that we have an obligation there. We went into that country uh, for what we think were good reasons, 
But in that process, of course, a lot of that country has suffered hugely. And among the people who have suffered the most, referred to in the email, are the people who helped us, uh, the translators who helped us. Thousands of people have worked for us. And in many respects, uh, they have become marked people in their own society, targeted, uh, really. So I think we have a huge obligation in this country to welcome into the country a number of these Iraqis who worked for us and helped us. And I hope other countries feel the same way because many of these people will never be accepted in their uh, native country. Would it help? ease the exit? Yes, of course it would. Is it our obligation? Absolutely, it's our obligation, and we should welcome these people into the country. Uh, and incidentally, not all of them work for the United States government. Many of them work for CBS or NBC, ABC, and uh, the news media there. And while I'm talking about the news media, may I say that covering that beat in Iraq uh, the people that do that have my greatest admiration. <laughs> they are out there without the protection that our government workers have, uh, living on the local economy, fending for themselves to report the story for us in this country. And the news media can take great, great pride in what those people have done. All right. Thank you very much. We're yes. going to have to let um, – Congressman Hamilton go. The Honorable Lee Hamilton has been our guest for the first half of the program. I will tell you that on the second half, we're going to have Ted Carmines here, who is the, the research director at the Center on Congress here at Indiana University. So we'll continue the discussion on one of uh, Mr. Hamilton's favorite topics. Congressman Hamilton, please come back and visit with us again. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Mary Catherine and Bob. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to see you. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have for the second half of the program uh, political scientist Edward G. Carmines, Ted Carmines, who is the director of research for the Center on Congress, of which Lee Hamilton is the director. Ted, thanks for being with us. Oh, glad to be here. Right. Thanks for being here. I uh, hope you got to hear um, Lee Hamilton in the first half of the program. He was uh, wonderful as usual. I'm sure he would be. <laughs> yes. Well, could you talk a little bit about the uh, Center on Congress? What exactly is it? How was it established? Well, the Center on Congress was established in uh, January of 1999, and it was uh, a time when uh, Lee Hamilton uh, retired from Congress, uh, and he believed all the time that he'd spent there, 34 years, that uh, Congress was an institution that, of course, was vital in our representative democracy, but he was concerned about people's lack of understanding and appreciation of Congress. Uh, so he wanted to do something that would be purely educational and nonpartisan uh, in terms of having people appreciate, not, you know, uh, appreciate in a critical way, but appreciate uh, the role that Congress could play and should play in our representative democracy. And so when Miles Brand was president of Indiana University, he and Lee came together and formed the Center on Congress in 1999. 
And during that time, uh, through a great variety of different activities, uh, uh, Lee has directed the Center on Congress uh, to help the American people um, understand the role that Congress can and should play in our representative democracy. So how much more do you think we know now than we knew in 1999? Well, we hope a little bit more. <laughs> uh, it, uh, you know, people can be, of course, very critical of Congress. Usually in public opinion polls, uh, the Congress is rated very lowly. And uh, Lee himself has been critical of many of the features of Congress. But Lee feels, and really the mission of the Congress Center is to help people uh, appreciate what the potential of Congress can be and why it is so vital in our representative democracy. Okay, now I, I know that in uh, among the work that you do, you do uh, surveys of, of uh, how people feel about Congress and the grade that um, that I guess the nation gave. You can talk about the methodology if if I don't have it quite right, yeah. but the, the grade that for Congress in 2007 was a solid C, which actually was up from a C minus in 2006. What do you think uh, made the difference? Well, now we do two. We have done two kinds of surveys of Congress. One is a public opinion survey. So uh, each uh, election, 2002, 2004, 2006, and we're getting ready for one in 2008, we have to take a representative sample of the uh, nation's population, and we ask them about their assessments of Congress, where they learn about Congress, what they think about Congress, and so forth. The second kind of survey, and the one that you're referring to, is one where we ask experts on Congress, really these are political scientists who specialize in their research and teaching on Congress, and we ask them to evaluate the performance of Congress during the past uh, term. And uh, we've done this twice now, and uh, we found that in 2006, at the end of the Republican era in dominating Congress, that uh, the experts gave Congress really a C- minus and a lot of Ds and unfortunately Fs in terms of what its performance uh, the first uh, session of the new Democratic Congress, uh, it was a little better. Not greatly better, but from a C-minus to a C is some improvement. And um, uh, it was really on account of probably uh, the Congress was asserting more of its rightful role in policymaking, which had been subdued during the um, Bush uh, Republican Congress years. Do you see if, if a president is viewed as weak or unpopular that the role of Congress uh, moves to the forefront a bit more? I think that's true. I mean, when we've had, uh, you know, as, as the popularity of presidents goes down, there's a little bit more uh, uh, confidence in the Congress. Uh, but, you know, at this time, I have to say that both the Congress and the president are held in very low esteem. And even though the Congress has made some comeback in public evaluation, still it's a long way from being an esteemed institution in terms of either the experts or the public. But I and I don't know if this is is still the case. I'd heard that oftentimes Congress as a whole is is viewed somewhat unfavorably, but people's individual representatives are not necessarily viewed that way. That the other guys they're no good, but my guy he's good. Yes, that's been a long-term finding that we found for several decades now that uh, on the whole, people are very critical of Congress as an institution in terms of what it's going, uh, doing in terms of uh, any of the major problems. It's often uh, held as so, uh, an institution that is not very effective. But when we ask uh, the public about their own representative, uh, usually they uh, have a very high opinion of their representative. Not all the time, but on the whole, they value their representative much more than they value the institution as a whole. All right. We're talking with Ted Carmines, who's the research director for the Center on Congress at IU. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. Or you can send us an email at noon in, at indiana.edu. I wanted to, to uh, go back to the, your survey of experts. How you know what? What are the kinds of things that they're grading Congress, the members of Congress, on in terms of performance? Well, we ask them a variety of questions about how they evaluate Congress, in terms of how well they represent the diverse American people, how well they do in terms of policy making, how they deal with the budget, which is a critical area of Congress, um, 
uh, what their relations are with the president and how they deal in terms of policy making where they share responsibility. So we try to assess the performance of Congress in terms of its constitutional role and current performance uh, in terms of uh, how they deal with various policy making uh, matters. Can you draw distinctions between um, Congress as a whole or the the um, two houses of Congress, the Senate versus the House of Representatives, or even further, individual con- members of Congress? Well, we have some questions because there are some areas where, of course, the Senate and the House have slightly different responsibilities. But in the, in the main, people seem to evaluate the Congress as an institution. And they don't tend to differ greatly in terms of how they evaluate the House of Representatives versus the Senate. Um, again, you know, we, it, it is peculiar, but it's, it's a long-standing uh, finding that, you know, people can be extremely critical of the institution and find that, you know, it really doesn't perform up to standards and, indeed, is not particularly helpful in terms of national policymaking. Uh, and yet, in many instances, when you ask them about their own a member of Congress, uh, they, you know, have had interactions with that member. They have, um, he has responded or she has responded to their particular queries or problems that they have, and they tend to have a much uh, higher view of their representative. And perhaps this is not surprising, because we see that individual uh, person, uh, member of Congress, we see them much more we often interact with them to some extent, and increasingly members of Congress are reaching out to their own constituents and trying to, uh, you know, not only for their re-election possibilities, but in terms of just maintaining their own public visibility and support. And so it's not surprising, perhaps, that uh, they members uh, of the public have a much higher view of the individual congressman a woman from their district than they do as the institution as a whole. Now, I'm also interested in the public opinion survey. And are there things that the Congress as a whole gets pretty decent marks on? I mean, the public opinion surveys usually show Congress um, looked at pretty unfavorably. But right. are, there, are there certain things that they actually looked on fairly favorably? Yes. I mean, not a great many, of course, <laughs> given the overall evaluation, but people do recognize that the Congress uh, is a deliberative body to some extent. They recognize that the problems that the Congress has to deal with are often difficult and sometimes intractable problems. And they recognize that Congress is a body that represents a very diverse and increasingly diverse population. So, and they recognize that members of Congress do want the input of citizens. So it's not like it's an insular institution. But where they fault Congress increasingly is that it's not a Congress that really is able to step up and deal with the most important problems facing the country. And it's one that they often think is too interested in arguing and debating and not getting things uh, done at the end of the day. You uh, complete these public opinion surveys and, and gather a lot of interesting data. What do, you, what do you do then with the data? Is this shared with members of Congress as a way to uh, give them areas in which to improve? Or, or what is, what's the end goal for the data? Well, the two things is that we want to uh, show the public uh, exactly what they and uh, experts think of the performance of Congress. So we want to increase the educational function of what we do. And we do make our public opinion and our expert surveys available on the website of the Congress Center. And we published um, uh, reports about, uh, we have news releases, reports, books, articles, and many of the data uh, that we uh, discover are in, come out in the commentaries that Lee does. So mm-hmm. we try to disseminate uh, the results and findings of our surveys as widely as possible uh, and to, you know, for anyone that's uh, interested. So that journalists who cover Congress, members of Congress, their staffs, people in Washington, but also not focused exclusively on Washington insiders. We want the public and influential citizens, and especially young people throughout the country, to understand uh, the great potential of this institution, but also 
the problems that it needs to overcome in order to fulfill its uh, constitutional purpose in our representative democracy. So really you hope to stimulate interest and in, in conversation about what happens in Congress. Exactly. And uh, to, you know, have people understand that in the Constitution, the Congress was the first branch of government. Mm-hmm. And so it has a particularly important purpose to play in our representative democracy. And uh, I think many people, and, uh, you know, the way uh, news is covered in Washington and so forth, it's very easy to be, have a very presidential-centric focus mm-hmm. on what's happening in national politics and to underplay and de-emphasize the role of Congress. But historically and constitutionally, the Congress was a central institution, and the whole purpose, really, of the Center on Congress is to help people appreciate the role that it can play and the role that it should play in a vital democracy. Does the Center on Congress take a stand on any kind of specific legislation, especially the some legislation that may have taken place, you know, since 9-11 that is viewed as kind of strengthening the presidential role as opposed to the role of Congress? No, it really doesn't. I mean, it's, it's purely nonpartisan and educational. Of course, the, you know, the, the whole underlying purpose and explicit purpose, really, of the Center on Congress is to, um, you know, demonstrate the, the vital role that Congress can play. But on any, it doesn't take any specific position on a piece of legislation or uh, it really is educational and purely nonpartisan in that regard. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, political scientist Edward G. Carmines, the director of research for the Center on Congress, has joined us for the second half of the program. And we have an email. We do. Uh, it begins, do you think that campaign funding reforms could help to restore public respect of the U.S. Congress? And then uh, there's a follow-up to that. But go ahead with that one, Ted. Well, I, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk in some legislation in this regard. And there's no question that um, one of the things that members of Congress constantly complain about is the amount of time that they have to spend uh, raising campaign funds. Um, This is especially true for House members who run every two years. I mean, much of the time, frankly, that they feel that they and probably we uh, feel that they should be devoted to legislative matters and national policymaking really is focused on fundraising. And it's become, it really has become a serious problem for the Congress. It costs so much money to run these national campaigns, and uh, people in Congress or people contemplating running for Congress, it's such a daunting task to raise the amount of money uh, to run a, a, a really competitive campaign that it has become a real impediment to the functioning of Congress, I believe, and I think many other people believe. So I think we've got to look very closely at what can be done uh, that fundraising and campaign expenditures are not so large and so um, a, such a determining factor that they really do detract from the ability of both people to run for Congress, people to participate in the election process, and for the um, detracting from the actual performance of people in Congress. I I'm, I love this topic, and I want to I want to get back to it. But uh, this question does have two follow ups that I mm-hmm. feel uh, we need to get to too. Uh, do you think term limits would help restore public respect to the Congress? You know, I I think you know we've had we have term limits in some of the states, California being a prime example, but others too. And it really is, I think, a two edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, it's very good to have the fresh blood, new blood, that's brought into uh, the, the legislatures, and this, ha- this has a distinct advantage. But one has to say that one of the downsizes of term limits is the fact that some of the expertise, which is often needed in terms of the kind of technical and extremely complicated problems that Congress has to deal with, uh, would be limited with term limits. So you know, there's a there's an upside, but also a downside, I think, in terms of term limits. And it's one, as we look at this in the state legislatures, that we're really becoming more aware of in terms of what are the advantages and disadvantages of this. I don't think 
in the near term anyway, that's likely to be applied to uh, the United States Congress. Yeah, I, I always think about term limits. It seems like it's a good idea until I think about um, Lee Hamilton and mm-hmm. how he would have had to have left before his 34 years and, and Richard Luger and right. how he would have had to have left. There are other people that I might not mind. but <laughs> <laughs> no, and, Maybe we need to form a committee. We need to decide right, yeah. who, who runs unlimited yeah, right. and who doesn't. And you know, it takes, it takes a long time. I mean, the learning curve, yeah. Congress to really, I mean, you know, national policy making has become so complicated mm-hmm. and complex. In order to uh, really focus on certain of these policy making areas, it takes a while to gain that kind of expertise and that experience. And uh, many of these problems require a lot of time and effort uh, to gain that expertise. And uh, that you don't want to, you know, underplay the importance of that in national policy making. Do you have any other suggestions on besides those two ideas as far as uh, campaign funding reforms or term limits that might be positive changes for Congress? Well, I mean, I think the the major thing is that Congress needs to recognize that it does it is an equal power in our representative democracy. I mean, I think members of Congress sometimes themselves don't understand that, you know, uh, as a body, they do have this vital role to play. And, you know, they need to come together themselves across party and ideological lines uh, to try to uh, become a more sustained and important uh, policy-making body. It's hard in Congress because you don't have a single leader like in the presidency, and compromise is required, and the problems are intractable and very difficult. But that's, uh, you know, that's what's required. And, and so, you know, I think Congress itself needs to appreciate the role that it can play. It doesn't always play it. Mm-hmm. And, and many times, in recent times, uh, it has often seen itself as far too subservient to the president. Mm-hmm. But it does have this potential. And when it's acting uh, in the best way that it can, it really does contribute uh, something uh, very important to our national policy making and representative democracy. All right. Thank you. All right. We have a phone call and then I think another email. Let's get the phone first. And it's Stan. Stan? Hi. um, I I have a question about practical matters when it comes to uh, funding campaigns. And and that has to do with the fact that the airwaves, and in fact all communications of of that sort, are actually a national asset. And they're auctioned off. I, I can't see why. We cannot have a federally mandated free access to it by candidates who have been selected by their parties. Um, there, there are various problems with it, I know, but it seems to me using these resources uh, for the national good uh, should be part of the process that, uh, that broadcasters uh, uh, can take in stride. Well, no, I've, and certainly in other countries that's done. And it's been, you know, talked about, but not really implemented in terms of this country. But if you think about it, I mean, one of the things that would reduce the cost of campaigns, um, presidential campaigns, but campaigns for the road, uh, our democracy, would be if uh, candidates were allowed uh, free time in terms of the national, uh, both in terms of television and in terms of radio. Now, there's a lot of tricky problems about this. How much time? What do you do about uh, candidates of not of major parties, independent candidacies, and so forth? So there's a lot of, you know, ticklish problems in terms of actually implementing that. But there's no question that one of the things that has driven up campaign costs tremendously is the need for advertising dollars and the need for political ads uh, and the expense of both producing them and airing them especially. And, and so there have been various proposals in terms of exactly what you, you know, you're suggesting, and there's no question that if we had something of that order, uh, it would be a, a big help in terms of reducing the overall cost of campaigns, which you know, have gone up astronomically mm-hmm. over the last several decades. Yes, and, and increasing the number of people who might be willing to, to commit themselves to campaigning. So it would broaden the, the, the pool of our uh, possible candidates. But, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, how, how do you regulate something like that 
uh, not have people around for the free ride. Really. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, when you talk to people in Congress, especially House members, senators too, uh, even though, you know, many of them, obviously, they've been very successful in their campaigns. They are, quote-unquote, good and often excellent campaigners. But <clears throat> they resent the amount of time and effort it takes to raise the money to run campaigns. Most of these people are not independently wealthy. Campaigns for the House, for competitive House seats, are in the millions of dollars now. Senate seats are well over 10 and 20, 30, 50 million dollars in some cases. And it's just daunting the amount of time and effort it takes to raise this money. And, you know, many members of Congress complain, especially in the House, that they spend as much, if not more, time and effort raising campaign funds than they actually do legislating. Yes. And they find that they, you know, never thought that this would exist in terms of the U.S. Congress, but in fact it does. And um, it, it really is becoming a problem, I think, in terms of, you know, the kind of people that are recruited into running campaigns and people who are willing to do this. It's a, it's a, you know, it's not just part of the job. Uh, anymore. It's becoming a dominant part of the job. Right. You have to be willing to basically close yourself in a room with a telephone <laughs> and sit there for days on end. A- yeah. Indeed you do. And, um, you know, of course, for challengers, this is even a more daunting task. I mean, uh, it for members of Congress, uh, they have already built up a network of supporters and people that they can go to. Their name is in the news. And so they have a real advantage there. But for especially someone who is not a who's not an extremely well-known challenger, they have to spend so much time and effort raising funds. And as I say, the expenditures have become so great uh, that it really becomes, you know, it's most of what they have to do in order to launch a competitive campaign. All right, I think we're out of time. We have an email that we're not going to get to, and uh, I had a few questions for uh, Ted that I'm not going to get to, but that's all right. It's been a fascinating topic, and Ted, thanks very much for being here with us today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it greatly. All right, so Ted Carmines has been our guest in the second half of the program. Of course, we had Lee Hamilton in the first half. If you want to hear what uh, former Congressman Hamilton had to say, you can podcast this program, or you can go to our archives at wfiu.org and hear what he had to say. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.